probably one of the most common things that people say when uh, you talk to them about God and they don't know God at all. They say, well, if God is so loving, why does he let so much suffering happen? And people tend to have a whole lot of questions about God and they tend to be pretty indignant. Well, if God, then why? And I think uh, as we look at uh, the story and the accounts of what God did uh, through history, that question might be answered. I think one of the things I always say, and I encourage myself also, well, if, if I'm indignant, then maybe God is more indignant. If I have a sense of anger about injustice, maybe God is more angry about injustice. Because the way we are created, we are created in the image of God. Male and female are created in the image of God. Therefore, everything in us that actually leans towards good, anything in us that leans towards a conscience that gets righteously angry about wrong that we see, we actually reflect our creator. It's the, what, it, what, what makes us unique as human beings. Our uniqueness is in our sense of conscience. Our uniqueness is in our sense of the, uh, the rights and wrongs. And so before we even started, even if you don't know God, uh, the way you're wired is an indication of who he is. And that's why God said, uh, you know, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. I love quoting that. He just goes, if you who are evil know how to, and you can fill in the blank, then how much more do I? And so whenever I get indignant and angry, I imagine myself talking across the table to Jesus. And I always conclude that when he's finished speaking, I'll be quiet. Because my question will be answered by the love that is in him. But because I can't answer all the questions right now, I have to go with what he's already revealed. And what he's revealed is his heart for human beings throughout history. And that's part of the, the reason why reading the scriptures is so helpful. Because the scriptures take us to a place that are not, is not dependent on our feelings. I don't expect anyone to believe in Jesus because I happen to say he's great. I just trust that if I say he's great and have a testimony about him, that might encourage somebody to explore who he is. But I think it's really helpful and important for each person to wrestle with who is God for them and why is he real and how can I know him. And so God reveals himself and he reveals himself in history and he reveals himself through his relationships uh, with people in history. And particularly, as we'll see, is through the, the people of Israel who were slaves. And they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, 400 plus years. And before they were in slavery, their country, the, the, the region they were staying in, uh, was full of drought. Exodus, um, let's see, Genesis 15. I'm just going to go through a couple of uh, scriptures to show us at least how they got there. They entered into in Genesis 15 in the time of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham was first his name. He was promised by God. God, God promised uh, through Abraham that his seed, the children that came from him, uh, would be more numerous than the stars. And he said to Abraham, look up there, and if you can count them, your gener the generations will be more than that. And we've talked about that quite a bit, that Abraham actually uh, said, how can this be? Because he didn't have any children. He and Sarah were, were barren. And it took many, many years before eventually Abraham actually took on his name Abraham, which was the promise of God, and he... Uh, and Sarah became pregnant. And, in, and again, that's one of the reasons why reading the scriptures is important because you see how God dealt with other people and you see how often as a, 
actually Carol was sharing, how often God just doesn't answer prayers. I mean, you should have heard Carol mouthing off about this English, you know. Why should he do English? And you go, well, you haven't heard the rest of the story yet. I didn't have the wisdom to say that. I just said, oh, my, get over it. And I say that because I had to do Greek and theology, and I said the same thing. What is the most absolute waste of time? I still haven't seen how it's redeemed anything. But, um, you know, there are these moments where we're just faced with doing something. I think God actually, I it doesn't say it in the Bible, but I do think he says, suck it up. I just think he says, shut up and do it. Because actually in the doing of it, I'm creating something in you that nothing else will happen, will create in you. I just want you to do it. And if you go through the scriptures, you begin to get a hint that that's how God sometimes works. And so it's quicker to suck it up than wine because he doesn't change. So he basically goes, well, you can whine and fail this time and I'll just talk to you next time. And you can blame me if you like. Have a nice life. And so Abraham was, was uh, given this promise and, and God said, you know, you will have all these possessions. And then he had a deep sleep and had a dream. And in verse 12 of chapter 15 of Genesis, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And so they, they, you know, God has a purpose. God isn't actually playing by sort of what am I going to do now. Throughout history, God has known what he's dealing with. He doesn't panic. He does work things through. And so he knew from right ahead of time. There's some questions we'll never ask or be able to answer this time, this side of death. But he certainly has this purpose, and he says that these, this, this na- they will go into this nation, which will be Egypt, and they will become slaves. And you go into Exodus chapter 3, and this is where they become slaves. They, they, they don't actually become slaves. They go in there as relatives of, uh, what's his name? Joseph and his amazing technical dream coat. And they, I'm not going to go into that now. They go, they go in because as Joseph's relatives, and then uh, there are about 70 of them, and then they stay there for 400 years. They multiply until they're nearly two, uh, 2 million, I think. Um, but somewhere between them going in and coming out, they, they became slaves, and they were oppressed. And, you know, I've seen that in growing up in South Africa, how a minority of people, 2 million people, can enslave 30 million it was a bit more than that, say, let's say 3 million, 4 million whites and 20 million blacks, oppress and enslave until for, for generations, because South Africa was settled with white, the Dutch settlers in 1652. From that time, there was this colonialism and this, uh, this oppression that began to move out. There were wars and everything else, but the mindset 300 years later was a mindset of slavery. And as we're, as we're talking this morning, I want to just keep on skipping because the story of Israel, enslavement, is the story of us and our enslavement. And the one thing that slaves don't even know sometimes is how much their mindset has gotten. And I'll guarantee us in this room, most of us have got slave mindsets in different areas. We don't even know we have it because we've always been that way. So when Jesus said, I've come to set you free, he said, my freedom is much, much bigger than yours. Your concept of freedom is don't let let anything bad happen to me and cut the grass without me doing it. My perception of freedom is much, much bigger than that for you. 
So that's why when we declare freedom over, say, businesses, we say, what do you think God can do? You see, you know how life works. It's who you know. Well, it's the same in the kingdom. It's who you know. Because who you know determines how much power you have. You walk into a room, I know Jesus, you have power beyond your imagination. Slaves just don't know that. Slaves go in focused on themselves. But God's breaking that, isn't he? So, when Exodus, they were in slavery and the the Lord um, spoke to Moses. See, Carol gave half my sermon, which is cool because that means that sort of God sort of dovetails things even when you don't know it. Why do I say that? Because, I've forgotten my train of thought there, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. In verse 7 of Exodus 3, God says this to Moses. Oh, I know why I said it. Moses was called by God. And he was called, by, confronted by God. He was 40 years in this wonderful phrase that the Old Testament, in the backside of the wilderness, which is very descriptive. And he was herding goats and sheep. He had grown up uh, he, you know, he's, he, he'd been put in a basket in the river and he'd been raised in Pharaoh's household. When he was about 40 years old, he came out. He was very aware of his Jewish heritage and the, the, his kinsmen were all slaves. And he came out and he saw an Egyptian mistreating uh, one of his kinsmen. And his kinsmen must have looked at him and said, nice for you to be the, 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 the rich Jew on the block in bed with the Egyptians and we're the slaves. And that's how he grew up. He was 40 years old when he actually just lost it with one of them and he killed, he killed the Egyptian. And then he was terrified and so he fled. He was terrified of the consequences of his action and he was terrified of what Pharaoh would do. And so he fled. And when he fled, he fled into a foreign land where he got married and then he spent 40 years looking after sheep and goats, raising a family and thinking, what was my life all about? I was born uh, and saved through this basket floating in the Nile. I was raised in a very wealthy, powerful home. I have a very good education probably. Everything was at my... And then I lost my temper and I blew it. And now I've been sitting here for 40 years until a bush burns and God says, Moses, I'm going to use you. You see, the story we're thinking about today, the story that we're thinking about coming up to Easter, is it's God's story. And everything about it is God. And so what God says to Moses, it's very, very powerful. He says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now what if that word is God's word over you and me as well? Where he says to you this morning, I have indeed seen, I have heard, I am concerned, and I have come down to rescue you. David, Carol's David, had to do English because God wanted to redeem the, maybe the, the, the inadequacy of feeling, I'm a failure, I can't do that stuff. Moses, 40 years after he fled, guess what? He was told to go back where? To the very thing he was most terrified of. He was to go back and face Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was the one who could kill him because of what he had done 40 years earlier. He had to go back and face his fear. 
How many of you think that God leads you because you do, you know, he, he doesn't want you to do anything that you don't feel comfortable about? That is almost like a mantra. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable when Lefty gets up here and tells all the men to come up. Who cares? You can be comfortable and crippled or you could be uncomfortable and set free. Somewhere along the line, as you track with God, even in our imperfection, and it's not always going to be 100% accurate, discomfort is going to be part of the journey. Facing fear is going to be part of the journey. Feeling inadequate is going to be part of the journey. And you read about Moses, and Moses felt very inadequate. He was old, and he didn't like what he was hearing. He loved the fact that God wanted to set the people of Egypt free. I, I'm really glad, God, that you are so sensitive and that you've heard the cries after 400 years. Where were you after the first 50? But we won't have that discussion because we don't know why. And Moses ends up having this big discussion with God. And when God said, I'm going to use you and you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to set my people free and you'll be in a musical in the 21st century. What did Moses say? Moses said, um, I can't speak, I stutter. He said a lot of stuff about himself. And I came across this. It's interesting sometimes how the reading that I sort of skim through sometimes just dovetails with what I want to say. Louis Giglio wrote a book about called I Am. And, and you know, Moses said to God, who are you? You know, what's your name? Because I've got to go in there and speak to Pharaoh and, and I don't know what to call you. And he says, you can call me I Am, which apparently translated is also I Be. As God's name, it declares that he is unchanging, constant, unending, always present, always God. God was telling Moses, I am the center of everything. I am running the show. I am the same every day forever. I am the owner of everything. I am the Lord. I am the creator and the sustainer of life. I am the title holder of the universe. I am the savior. I am your source. I am more than enough. I'm inexhaustible and immeasurable. I am who I am. I am God. And in a heartbeat, Moses knew God's name and something more. He finally knew his. For if God's name is I am, Moses' name must be I am not. I am not the center of everything. I am not in control. I am not the source. I am not the solution. I am not all powerful. I'm not calling the shots. I'm not the owner of anything. I'm not the Lord. And what God was saying to Moses was he says, I didn't call you because I was depending on you. I will be with you. That's all God ever says. God is not actually disillusioned. He's not going, oh, you better do this in your own strength. He just goes, I just need some hands, some feet and the mouth. I will be with you. And as you walk with me, I will actually empower you. I think way too many of us have grown up so passive that we're always waiting for something to happen so that we can feel mighty. Well, you're not. It's good news. As you are, so he will be. Oh, I should write that down. Take notes on myself. As you are, so he will be. In other words, in your weakness, he will be strong. What will you feel? Str weak. Perfect love will cast out fear, but I walk through fear and I discover the love. Everything that I am is less than. Everything that he is is more than. But the only way I, I actually receive the more than is to trust him with the less than, which is me. So that means he can use all of us anytime because he's not dependent on us. 
I mean, look at disease. Disease doesn't go. You know, disease goes after anyone, and anybody spreads disease. You don't need to do a degree to spread disease. And what happens to the spirit of God is the same. You just catch it. I'm not worthy enough to get flu. Well, who cares? You get it because you breathe. You're a human being. So what if the Spirit of God is like that too? So it's got nothing to do with how worthy you are. It's got to do with how great He is. You mean He can even use you? Yep. And so God sent into Pharaoh, uh, to Pharaoh Moses who spoke about plagues and released plagues. Because you remember He said to Moses, Moses, when you actually speak to Pharaoh, you will seem as a God. And Moses must have gone, you must be kidding. But he told Moses what to say and he gave Moses words and he gave Moses power beyond his understanding. And these plagues began to happen in Egypt. Not because God wanted to destroy people. It was just that Pharaoh's hold was such that uh, he had to work it out through him, in him, with him. And the strange thing as we, as we look at this is that God... You know, God could have just done something supernatural, like wipe out Pharaoh or, or kill everybody. He could have just done something, appear to Pharaoh with an angel and just scared the lights out of him. But God works through human beings. He co-labors with us. That's the way he works. And often, I know I have, you know, I'm always wanting these supernatural encounters and something supernatural to happen. So half the Christian church is making them up and the other half doesn't satisfy with the, what they have. God is working in all kinds of ways do not build your faith on your feelings. I promise you your feelings will let you down or you'll be really irritating because you'll think it's God and somebody say they're just ADD. I mean, really, it's, it's, I don't hear God. I just hear a very noisy person. And so there's an element of God is working in all kinds of ways through all kinds of personalities. But he is doing it because he is great. And he works in all kinds of unlikely ways. So I better get on with what I was trying to say at the beginning here, which is, is getting to, to Exodus 12 to just uh, illustrate this, actually. You see, these people are in slavery and they've been sent, they've been sent uh, Moses to help set them free. They couldn't get free themselves. This is the situation that is humankind, really. And when God looks at you and me, he sees a, he sees a degree of slavery, a, sli a blindness and deafness and bondage. And he's come to set us free. And so what he does is he takes action. And in 12 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is the last plague. This is going to be the plague where the angel of death passes over the firstborn. I think it's the last because it's, it's something that God's reluctant to do, but in a sense he has to do. And we could spend all morning on that one. But I just want to quickly look at these, uh, the first month of your year. This is a new beginning. This is the time when your slavery is going to end and you're going to be set free. And then you're going to have to walk out that freedom. But the event of that freedom is what God did. The event of our freedom is what God did on the cross. Again, God could have done this like just supernaturally, just declared it. But notice he doesn't. And so through Moses and Aaron, he says, This is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. What does that tell you? That tells you that, again, in the working out of God setting the people free from slavery, he says, I want everybody to own this and participate. So every household, you're to take a lamb 
And on the tenth day, you're going to take this lamb and you're going to look after it. One for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defects, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats and take care of them until the 14th day of the month. You're going to take these lambs, and I don't want the oldest one that you don't want. I want the best one. And I want you to actually look after it for four days because I want you to actually have a heart relationship with it. I want you to actually feel something about this lamb. And then I want you to actually, on the 14th day, give it. Now, there's symbolism in this. On the 10th day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And on the 14th day, he was killed. What God was doing in this Passover so many years, 1,500 years before Jesus, was saying, this is how it's going to work out. I'm going to set my people free from Egypt. And then I'm going to set the world free from the slavery they held into through my son. This lamb without defect is my son. He will be Jesus. At this point, you haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, obviously. But this is where it's going. Because you see, the Bible always qualifies itself. It always has another explanation if you look behind it. Why is this important? Because it's really cool to know that the God of history actually has worked through history. There are a lot of people say, oh, you can't believe in Jesus. He's just a myth. Well, that's just a demonstration of somebody's prejudice and ignorance. There's a huge amount of historical rootedness in Jesus and in who, what God did in him and what he continues to do, which is encouraging because I don't want to believe in something that's just dependent on my feelings. And so he says, without defect, and you may take them from sheep or goats, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, and when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Twilight is when Jesus was crucified and died. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. Fire is important because God burns away everything. He wanted to take that whole offering. There was going to be nothing left. So eat what you can and anything else. It's got to be roasted over fire because fire purifies. This is a sacrifice for the sin of Israel. This is a sacrifice for the sin of people. And if you want to take that into our contemporary thing, just again, look at your own sense of injustice. You go home today and somebody's robbed your house. They've taken everything out. The first thing you do is phone the RCMP. You don't just say, bless you, Jesus. Thank you that you might provide it. If you do, that's pretty cool, but I doubt it. You probably phone the RCMP. Why do you phone the RCMP? Because you have a deep sense of injustice in you. I've been robbed. If you who are evil know how to feel injustice, how much more does God? And you go to the RCMP and you say, this is what happened and this is what's been stolen and here's a list of stuff and you better catch the guy. And then you go to insurance and say you need to replace it. You demand justice by the replacement and everything else that goes on in you. You carry within you the DNA of God who has a deep sense of justice too. The only problem with God is, what happens if the thief who took all your stuff comes in and said, well, my friend told me that I could take whatever I like. It was his house. Relative truth, he believed it. And you go, well, you were told a lie. It's my stuff. Would that stand up in court? Do you think? Joe told me it was mine. I could have anything. I didn't realize, Your Honor. When we come before God, what are we going to do? God says, you've walked through this earth and you've treated it like your own. 
You're shaking your fist at me at every time anything goes wrong. You've treated this stuff as if it's yours. Every time I ask you to give up something, you whine. You go and you, you shoot the animals, you do your hunting, you do whatever you do and you pretend it's all yours. You've taken the life that I've given you and you've acted out as if it's yours. You are a thief, a liar, and I have some issues with you. What if he, if he speaks to us like that? And what if he's right? And what if we say, but I didn't know? Well, you who are evil, don't let ignorance stop justice. Bam, you're dead. And when you're guilty and you're ignorant and then it's all expo exposed, what happens? Trembling, I go, is there anyone here who's going to help me? And that's when you want to hear God the Father say, I have seen, I have heard, and I have come. And he steps into the room and he says, here's John. He's up to his neck in trouble. He's pleading ignorance, second chances, third chances, fourth chances. I didn't know. He's guilty. And guilt for him means hell. We never talk about hell. Separation from God forever. And into the room comes Jesus or the Lamb. They say, the Lamb has been slain. The, the, the price for you, John, has been paid through this Lamb. And the door frame of the house has been painted. I've, I've done it all. But the one thing I can't do, I can't force you to go through that door frame. I can't force you to receive, on my terms, my rescue for you. So I have come and I've said, here it is. So they painted the door frames of the homes before the angel of death, the judgment, came over. If your door frame had no blood, you were the firstborn there was killed. The next morning, people come out in the street. They've had their door frames. And you go, Bill Taylor? He's still alive? He had the blood on his door frame. But I know Bill Taylor. He doesn't deserve to live. Do you think everybody who was in that group of Israelites who was set free with some cool guys who deserved it, you think everybody who were in those homes with the blood covering the lintels were sincerely believing? I doubt it. They just happened to have the enough faith to do what they were told. It's called grace. And God so loved his people that he said, this is what you have to do because my judgment has to come and in order for you to be free, death has to happen. And then he said, when you've eaten, you've got to, be, you've got to eat this stuff dressed, ready for a journey. Because I'm going to set you free in order to take, go on a journey. He didn't set them free just so they could be free in Egypt. He set them free so they could have their own life and own inheritance. You have been set free for a reason. The I am nots were rescued by I am. The I am nots were always I am nots. They just became rescued I am nots. And maybe he changed it to I will be. And the point of the cross is that God came in Jesus to a people who were enslaved, who were not, and said, I have come that you might have freedom. It's all about his love and his grace. And we're going to continue to talk about that. So this, this communion that we have here goes back 3,000 years. It starts as the Passover. It ends with Jesus breaking bread and saying, do this in remembrance of me. I am the lamb that was slain for you. And I, what I have to do personally is receive what's been given. That's why, where it gets personal. And that's why I say to you, when you come up to communion, don't talk to each other. Honor this thing. I, I'm afraid in our informality we're losing that. Honor what we're doing. We're coming before the living God and saying, I want this to be mine. Thank you that you've gone to the cross for me. 
I'm not getting pointed at anybody, but some people come up to me and sort of say, hi, thanks, man. And I kind of don't respond. And I deliberately don't respond because it's not about me at that point. I don't want to be seen. It's about Jesus. I don't want to converse with you. I'm just serving him, serving you. And I want to raise the level of respect and honor for this thing we do. It's about Jesus' presence uh, in a way that's a mystery. That I'm a great sinner who needs a savior. And yes, he set me free, but it's an ongoing thing like for all of us. And this is just a remembrance of that. That if it were not for you, God, I would have no hope. I would have no future. I would have a baggage in the past. There would be nothing. So I want to know that freedom every day. Here's a a song that just says, this is how love as we prepare for communion. And I believe, you know, the Lord just wants to encourage us and to say, you know, I want to set slaves free. Um, But one of the things that gets in the way is that we want it to be done privately and sometimes it can't be done privately. That freedom comes as it gets personal. I'm going to put in the trail notes. I'm just finishing, but I want to pray over us. Uh, I'm going to put it in the story of Ruth. Ruth is in Parksville. And she gave me her story and, and she told it last week. Ruth's in her 70s. She's been a Christian for many years. And at a group we had two weeks ago in the evening, one, one Wednesday, she said, you know, I've had nightmares all my life. I haven't slept without nightmares since I was three years old. Now you hear that and you go, there's a problem, there's an issue. And at the end I said, Ruth, let's pray over that. And she jumped into the chair, sure. And she talked about how at three years old, her mother, both her parents were drug addicts, alcoholics. Her mother had screamed at her or done something to her that had terrified her. And the nightmare started there. At nine years old, her father told, they were sitting at the table, and her father, um, she, she, she lost it with her parents and said, I hate you to her mother. Father, in a drunken sort of fury, picked her up and threw her on her bed in her bedroom and beat her and said, now go down and tell your mother that you're sorry and that you love her. And she said, no. So he beat her again. She still said no, and he beat her a third time. She said, as a nine-year-old, I realized that unless I went and lied to my mother, I'd be killed. So she went and she told her mother she loved her. And she had nightmares and woke up every morning having to say Jesus and declaring things. She was a Christian for a long, long time. And when we prayed, we just asked Jesus to come into that little girl's room at three years old. And she kept wanting to go somewhere else and pray for her mother. And I kept saying, no, Ruth, you just let Jesus be here for you. And Jesus came to that little girl and she felt safe with him in that room at three years old. And he took all the fear out of that little girl. And at nine years old, he came into that room where their father had totally abused her and he held her and he, and he took all the fear out of her. She went home that night and she still had nightmares. The next morning, she got up and she said, I still declare Jesus. And Wednesday this week, she was in the group and she said, I didn't tell anybody, but I haven't had a nightmare since that time in the last week for the first time in 70 years. I tell you that story, as Lefty would say, I say this for this. I want to speak to your pride. And I want to speak to your willfulness that actually refuses to let God in. Because you will not humble yourself. I can preach as much as I like. And I can weep here. But there are people who will die and not experience what Ruth found as freedom. Because they will not sit on the chair and say, Jesus, I need others to help me. Receive what you have already won for me. And I just invite you to just take hold of what Jesus has for you. And wherever you need to work it out, humble yourself and work it out.
I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, it will not always be private. Sometimes it will be, but most of the time, I needed somebody to cut my hair, you need somebody to heal your soul. To receive what the Father has won for you. You stand. So Father, I just want to speak over those here right now, your love and your freedom. Will you sense in yourself something that you just held slavery to? I don't know what it is, but you'll know. Well, God the Father loves you. He's heard your cry and he's come for you. And he says, I'm here for you to set you free. And Father, I speak against the lies that are spoken over us about our conditions. I speak against the lies that cause us to remain slaves to the past or to the things that we think we're not like Moses was. I speak against anything that causes us to live diminished lives. And I just break the curses in Jesus' name. And I call you up to freedom. But I call you up to discover your freedom. To take the next step that will release you into all that the Father has. And I call you up to be all that God wants you to be. And that might mean that you need, like Ruth, to sit on a chair and to say to somebody, help me work this through, please. So I bless what you're doing in each person here, Father. I bless what you have released and made possible because of what you did on the cross. God loves you passionately. So I just bless the work of your word in our hearts and lives today.